I have a great selection of black teas. Everything uh, over here, you've got Mango Sun, Earl Grey. My brother Pat and I are part of the Ojai Witness Brigade. Other places have them, I'm sure. It's an unaffiliated group of Ojai residents whose purpose is tied to extreme events. If there's a super high surf, a forest fire, a biblical rainstorm, or other general catastrophe, we feel a duty, and we answer the call. Let's go check it out. Oh, I you on that. Here's the story. Welcome back to the Townies Podcast. I am Kim Maxwell, and I am a Townie. I am a Townie who loves other people's stories. I teach a weekly writing and performance workshop here in my ridiculously small fishbowl of a town nestled in the foothills of Ventura County. And for 25 years, the raw and vulnerable musings of my brilliant and courageous students have sent me home filled with hope. Some of my beloved students are seasoned professionals. Some have never even been on a stage before. But there they are, up in front of a live audience, flinging themselves and their brand new words into the abyss. Their reward? They have been heard. They matter. Their words matter. And the audience? Well, they have just officially been granted permission to do the same. To go out there somewhere and take a big old risk. And that is the sacred exchange between terrified storyteller and gracious audience member. Permission. I love people's stories. Because stories are what connect us. This is the Townies Podcast. Welcome to the Neighborhood. Episode 11, I Hate It When You Come Home, Part 2, a special Father's Day edition. First story, Daughter's Father, written and performed by Katie Newcomer. Back for the third time on the Townies podcast because we just can't get enough of the delightful Miss Katie. Keep doing your thing, my love. You're brilliant and we adore you. She's an itty-bitty bundle of possibility. A princess roams your halls. She puts her tiny toddler toes in your gargantuan shoes. You are her hero. It must be hard to be a daughter's father. Her little hand in yours grows larger. It's harder to pick her up. She wants to wear makeup. You get less details at the dinner table. It must be hard to be a daughter's father. She blossoms and it makes you uncomfortable. Her bedroom door slams and more goes unsaid. She trades in the tiara for boys in tight t-shirts and you see yourself reflected. It must be hard to be a daughter's father. She's no longer a princess. She is grown and capable and heartbroken. Her world has less guarantees. You can't fix it. You can't bridge her wage gap. You can't change the politics surrounding her uterus. You can't tell her one in five women haven't been sexually assaulted. You can't fix it. You can't. It must be hard to be a daughter's father. 
She's sorry, and she still needs you. She's sorry you can't fix the world, and she needs you to stay in it with her. She's sorry you can't always understand, and she needs you to keep listening. She's sorry she no longer needs a hero, and she needs you to be one anyway. It must be hard to be a daughter's father. You just heard from Katie Newcomer. The Last Time I Saw My Dad, written and performed by Carolyn Allen. An epically inspiring English professor at UCSB and a paint-slinging visual artist with the range from political statements to the most delicate of dahlias. Carolyn is as sarcastic and acerbic as she is dedicated to her students and the art of teaching. She also makes an excellent fool at a Halloween party. Just saying. We're always lost. We have a map, but can't read it. Or maybe we don't have a map. We're just relying on memory, whatever. We're always lost. That's me and my dad. He's always in charge, and I love him, even though he's lost and angry that he's lost. And we're out in the middle of nowhere in the Sierras, surrounded by granite boulders and scrawny, windblown pine trees. That's us, the people who are lost. The dad and the little girl. Only now, I'm the driver, and he's 86 years old, which means I'm 51. And we're lost again, because that's what we do together. We get lost on our way to somewhere really beautiful. And that somewhere really beautiful is always worth the aggravation. But Jesus Christ, what am I doing with this old man now? I've come all this way up to Oregon from Southern California and all he can talk about is what a good dad he was? He wasn't. <laughs> How happy my sister and I were when we were children. We weren't. How he's got all these Bulgarian girls who call him Papa and wish he was their papa because he's such a good, understanding, supportive male presence in their lives. And what he most wants to talk about is how he can't understand why my sister and half-brother stopped talking to him 20 years ago. This is not how I want to spend what could be the last visit with my dad. I just want to love him simply and easily. Is that too much? <laughs> And we're on a country road now on our way to the cabin his wife booked for us up at Seven Falls, a place I've never been. And he tells me, I'm not sure this is the right way, but let's keep going. <laughs> okay, Dad. We get to the cabin, and he's shuffling along beside me in the parking lot. And I'm thinking, how are we going to hike the seven-mile trail together? He is slow, so slow. My poor old father, he's an old man. When did this happen? He used to be so strong and fast, and I could barely catch up to him. The cabin is small and cold, with two twin beds, one right next to the tiny bathroom, and I mean tiny, I mean the kind you have to open the door, maneuver yourself between the toilet and the sink, and close it. <laughs> I'm thinking, 
I am not going to sleep in the bed next to the bathroom. I have been listening to my dad piss and shit and fart my whole life, and I'm not going to be in that bed. Then, bright and early the next morning, we take our hike. So uh, how are we going to do this, Dad? Are you really strong enough for a seven-mile hike? No, no, I, I don't think I am, he says. You'll go on the hike. It goes into the canyon, past all the marvelous falls, and then the trail comes back up just two miles from here. I'll walk the two miles to where your trail ends. <laughs> Are you sure, Dad? I can't believe I'm letting this old man walk two miles all by himself. He can't see very well. He's shuffling. I stand there and watch as he disappears into the forest. Oh, my God, something's going to happen to him. He's going to get lost. I may never see him again. I'm not a fast walker. I've got seven miles to go up and down, up and down, surrounded by tall pine trees and ferns and damp logs and wildflowers, and it's all beautiful, but I am panicked. I've got to do this thing fast because I should never have let that frail old man walk alone in the forest. People are stopping to take pictures of the waterfalls, seven of them. There are seven falls, and I have to see and appreciate every goddamn one of them. Otherwise, what's the point of me being here? Oh, for God's sakes, there's a couple's being all romantic under the falls. I'm damp with the mist. I take a snapshot and sprint walk my way through the rest of the hike. More falls, double falls, a fall with a cave, a fall like a floating sheet of mist, the trails running behind it, slippery. This is so insane. What am I doing here alone while my dad's up there in the forest somewhere hobbling along at a snail's pace? What if he gets eaten by a bear or jumped by a biker? What if he falls and breaks his hip? This trip feels like a mistake. We're on separate trails. I finally get to the end of my walk and see a lot of paths crisscrossing under the trees. I'm at the rim of the canyon. There are people meandering this way and that. I don't know where I'm supposed to meet them. I hadn't imagined so much ambiguity at the end of the trail. I wander around searching for my dad, and suddenly he's right there, walking out of a shadow behind a big rock, bent forwards, staring out through giant sunglasses. <laughs> dad, I yell. I'm so glad I found you. Oh, yes, he says. Me too. Have you been here long? I didn't know where to go. Not too long, he says. I tried to bury my, oh my God, what if I never find him? He's angry in my voice, but how was your walk, I ask. It was fine, uh, but I realized it was too long, so I hitchhiked here. <laughs> So I just stood on the road for a minute with my thumb out and got a ride right away. I thought we should get back to the car. <laughs> what? I hadn't even thought about that. Our car, two miles away. I don't think so, Dad. I'll go get it. It's too far, he says. We can hitchhike. There's no use arguing. Okay, Dad. We'll stand over here, he says. That's the opposite direction we want to go, I say. No, it's not. Yes, it is. <laughs> no, it's not. 
Yes, it is, Dad. No, it's not. It's where I stood when I got picked up. And now we want to go in the other direction. He's silent. You're right, he says. Sometimes I feel so awful for being right. Your poor old dad is losing his mind, he says. He's been saying this for 30 years, and finally, it's almost true. We find a place on the sunny side of the road and stick out our thumbs. I watch couples drive by without even glancing at us. Families where the children are peering out the windows from the side and the back. I so don't want to be standing here in the hot sun, hitchhiking with my dad. Nobody wants us. We're not attractive as a couple. A middle-aged woman in basketball shorts and her 86-year-old dad, it's grotesque. Dad, I say, it's getting too hot. Nobody's picking us up. No, he says, I, I, I don't understand it. They must have felt sorry for you, for what, because you were standing alone, but now they see the two of us and we just, we look weird. <laughs> I guess so. Look, Dad, I can't take this sun anymore. How about we walk into the shade of the park and I run back to the car and pick you up? I'll run, so it won't take too long. Okay, he says, and we walk back into the forest. I run to the car, only I'm not really a runner. I'm a fast waddler. I'm feeling so heroic, though. I'm running through the forest. I'm a good daughter. I walked the seven miles. I found my dad. I'm saving us. Thank God, here I am at the car. I drive us back. We are tired. I'm lying on my bed, reading a great book, totally into it. He's on his bed with an arm slung across his face, hiding from the light. Suddenly he says, I'd like to give my daughter a brief lesson in early philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) He shuffles across the room to my bed, lies on his side, legs bent towards me. I stare at his freckled forehead. His eyes are closed. He's holding his chin between thumb and forefinger. Let me tell you about the guy named Zen, who created what were known as Zen paradoxes, applying Parmenides in absurd ways to everyday life events. He gives examples. From there, he goes to Descartes and Newton, creating calculus and how one plus one half plus one quarter plus one eighth will always equal two. And I finally understand something, and it's cool, so I say, that's great! Because it means you can keep reaching for something, and it will always be just a fraction of a unit, until finally it isn't. Yeah, he says, blows his nose. (laughs) Plato and Aristotle are my favorite philosophers, he says, and in a steady, unbroken, utterly familiar drone, he gives a lecture about Plato's theories and Aristotle's ethics and the life of Socrates, and he never once looks at me or waits for a response. He just lies there and gives a canned introductory lecture on the beginning of Western thought. (laughs) This is dad at his most essential, the man living in his own head. I am so angry. 
Tears fall from my eyes and drip onto the book. I always have a pencil in my hand when I read because I like to take notes. I write in the margin, I hate you so much. <laughs> I could poke your eye out with this pencil right now. That makes me feel good. You don't even know I'm here. He starts on Aristotle, hiccups and burps, goes to Galileo, discovery, back to Heraclitus. Now Heraclitus said, everything is in motion, which is true. The reason the universe is not chaotic is because there's a rational concept he called the logos, which keeps the universe together. <clears throat> he scrunches his mouth. That motion I've seen and heard so many times, not just in him, but in my sister, my cousins, and myself, too. I don't know about the universe being held together by a logos. It feels to me like it's falling apart. He tells me Plato's theory of the realm of ideals, how the ideal of a perfect anything, triangle, chair, table, never exists in the real world. Why? Because the whole universe is imperfect. All that actually is imperfect. Is this really the last night? I'm going to spend with my dad. I love this guy so much, but I hate him too. He doesn't care if I'm interested. I don't even exist. He winds down, returns to his own bed. I sit here, tears have dried on my cheeks. In the morning, we go to the lodge cafeteria for breakfast. We sit across from each other, plates stacked high with pancakes. He says, after breakfast, I'd like to go home. It's been nice visiting with you. You're so nice to look at, and you're intelligent and kind and thoughtful. Oh boy, was I lucky to get Carolyn for a daughter. I'll have to send you more love letters, tell you how much I love you. I smile, staring into his light blue eyes. What he just said would have meant so much more if he hadn't earlier said, I've discovered the secret to being charming, and now I can make anybody like me. <laughs> What's that, Dad? You just compliment people. Tell them their good qualities. We start eating. He's doing that thing he does since he was 50 and dating that 23-year-old girl who was into sensory exercises and living fully in the moment. <laughs> He's sitting across from me and eating with his eyes closed. <laughs> totally oblivious to everything around him, smacking his lips, shutting his eyes so he can fully enjoy every mouth. Full. He's shutting the world out the way he always has, the way he decided to do a long time ago. This imperfect, unkind, judgmental world. I stare at him and feel my nose sting the way it does when you're holding back tears. And I say, Dad, do you think we'll ever see each other again? What? Now he's looking at me. Do you think we'll ever see each other again? He stares straight at me. I'm focused on his light blue eyes, blinking in wonderment. That's a very good question. No.
I don't think we will. I'm crying, wiping the tears from my eyes. He's right. We won't. Because it's my choice now. And I will never put myself through this misery of oblivion again. <laughs> when I was a little girl and we go camping together on those visits children of divorced parents have with the one who doesn't have custody, we always spent time in our sleeping bags staring up at the stars. My head would lie in the crook of his arm and I could feel his every breath. I would feel loved and complete in those moments under the stars, talking quietly with my strong dad. One night he asked if I would take care of him when he was old. I said yes. Later, back home with my mom, I told her about the conversation. Her eyes flashed and her jaw clenched in that fury my father's missteps always brought. He shouldn't have asked you that. Why? <laughs> You're a little girl. He shouldn't be extracting promises from you. You shouldn't be thinking about that. But I'd want to. It would be nice if instead of asking if you'll take care of him, he'd take care of you and your sister. He hasn't paid child support in years, just sends boxes of shoes that don't even fit you and pretty postcards from all his trips to Europe. For a long time, I didn't hold it against dad that he didn't pay child support. I was on his side in my parents' ongoing fight. He was the fun parent, the one who took us on vacations, the one who elicited confidences, a trained psychologist. He could really get you to talk, and he always listened sympathetically. I know why those Bulgarian girls love him so much, why they wish he was their papa. It's in intoxicating to have an older man listen to your every feeling and understand your sense of alienation. He was great at being the cool dad when I was a teenager hitchhiking, falling in love, dropping out of high school. But now, I just feel angry, wrung out, blasted by disappointment. I'm not on his side against the harsh, unkind, imperfect world anymore. I'm part of that world. I see him shutting us out, not bothering with hearing aids or glasses that actually fit, closing his eyes, not just while eating, but talking too. When I've dropped him off at the overheated condo and given him a big hug goodbye, I'm so rattled and discombobulated, I sideswipe another car on the road while I'm making the right turn. I stop, but the other car keeps going. Good, because I just can't deal with anything right now. I drive back to Portland, feeling one of my post-dad visit colds coming on, the sore throat, the itchy eyes. I am a wreck. I drop the car off at the rental agency after they've closed, and when they call the next morning to ask about the big scratch on the side, I close my eyes and say, oh, really? <laughs> I didn't see it. <laughs> this is not big of me. I am not the ideal. I am not perfect. I am not even good. But I needed to get away with something. And I'm still lost, but I did get away. And that was Carolyn Allen. Now with the title track from her album Cinderblock Bookshelves, Rain Perry. I said goodbye from the hospital doorway. Now I'm standing one last time in my mother's 
gets Innocence is gone too soon I climb in the car with my father Wipe my eyes and say goodbye to the South Bay We drive all night for West Marin He puts his hand on my shoulder He doesn't know what to say We got on the highway together Who would be the daughter? Who would be the son? How would he improve upon the way he'd seen this? Batique sheets, thumbtack to the ceiling And cinder block bookshelves from the lumber yard Hold a cup of pens, a hawk feather, a little leather stash box, the works of Sam Shepard, the tale of Siddhartha. Best of times are magic, he pulls beauty out of air. Nights are filled with music. Cause we gotta move again On the highway together My daddy and me When the bill turns red You race down to the phone company Kill the engine going downhill Save on fuel Another set of forms To fill out another new Shopping cart through town Have to wait till daylight To hitch a ride home with a friend So we sing Beatles songs together Till the night comes to an end Now I'm hugging good to meet you to girlfriend 23 Now a month's gone by and the shelves go Coming down to money And they're not getting along She can't give him the support he needs So once again we're Get away from him 
suddenly he's gone too soon From their doorways watch my daughter sleeping Safe in the same rooms they've always slept They'll tell me what I miss someday and I'll try to understand For every slip backwards you hope for another forward step Thank you, Rain Perry. To learn more about the artists and music featured on the Townies Podcast, please visit thetowniespodcast.org. Persimmons, written and performed by Chris Palmquist. A recently returned true blue deep downtowny in every sense of the word. Chris grew up here in the Ojai Valley, Nordoff High School, the Ojai Playhouse, Ojai Ice Cream, and driving too fast through the illustrious dip on the East End. Off to college and around the world, we are all so glad he and his beautiful words have found their way back. Persimmons are the national fruit of Japan. (laughs) They are about the size of a tomato. Commodore Perry sent the first seeds to America back in 1856. The Latin word for persimmon is food of the gods. I'm quite positive that no one ever revered the persimmon as much as my father. (laughs) From what I remember, the persimmon passion started around the time I was a sophomore in high school. A trying time for any young person. (laughs) I think my father must have thought that if he ate enough persimmons, he might live forever. True, persimmons are loaded with many things beneficial to the health of humans. In particular, they are one of the few foods credited with destroying cancer cells while not harming normal human cells. My father ate them, he juiced them, he froze them, and he made persimmon pops from the juice. (laughs) He had a small persimmon factory in the house. Oh yeah, I forgot. He also dehydrated them to make persimmon chips. During holiday seasons, he would have homemade baskets of bread in which he would put all of the various persimmon products to give away to all his friends. My father never had cancer. (laughs) Concurrent with his 10-year-plus persimmon passion was his beekeeping obsession. A story for another time. (laughs) Compared to the latter, the former seems innocuous. I guess it was. However, it did not seem so to me in my awkward mid-teen years. One might ask, where my father got his hands on all those persimmons. After all, they are an uncommon fruit. Well, he certainly wasn't buying them at Bayless. No. He was cruising around Ojai, scoping out persimmon trees in other people's yards. Sometimes my father would make me go to work with him. It was compulsory. Once, more than once, on the way home, he would stop the work truck at a house which had that special tree which bore that special, magic, eastern, life-giving fruit. Okay, Chris, come on, grab a gunny sack and start filling it with persimmons. (laughs) He would say with urgency as he looked around. Uh, I think this is someone's house, Dad. (laughs) Don't worry, 
It, it's all right. I, I know them. His eyes started. I knew it was a lie. My father would have never bothered with such mundane social etiquette as to ask permission. There was really nothing for it. I was his prisoner, and there was no way. My father was leaving until he had gotten every persimmon off that tree. That tree that was smack in the middle of some stranger's yard in broad daylight. Well, to my immense horror, the occupants of the house were home, and not at all that strange. Not so strange as we were. I was about three-quarters of the way fulfilling my first gunny sack when I heard the unmistakable sound of a screen door slamming. What are you guys doing? I heard a voice say somewhat timidly. Everyone sounded timid compared to my father. Uh, we're only taking the ones that were about to be that need to be picked before they fall on the ground, my dad barked out aggressively. I knew that in my dad's mind, those persimmons belonged to him. He must have considered it his duty to save the magic fruit from those people who obviously didn't appreciate it before it rotted on the ground. Of course, he didn't limit himself to the ones on the ground, of which there were only a few and they were indeed very rotten. He was taking the best ones off the tree even while he was denying it. Is that you, Chris? I heard a voice say. Looking up, I realized I recognized the voice's owner. He was an upperclassman, one of the popular kids. I don't, re I don't remember his name now, but he was on the football team, though. I would honestly have laid odds that he did not know my name, but he did. In that moment, I wished I was anyone else, but I wasn't. Yeah, it's me. How's it going? Before he could answer, my dad barked out, Chris, you don't have time to talk. That was actually a blessing because I had no idea what to say. <laughs> Sensing the moment my call for a smidgen of diplomacy, my father offered some sort of explanation. Well, uh, <clears throat> we didn't know there was anyone home. We didn't want to bother anyone by asking, so we just decided to take a few that were about to fall in. We're doing you a favor. Clean up your yard before it all rots. Don't stand there, Chris. Get a ladder and get those ones from the top. I look like about to fall. Realizing, as most people quickly do, that arguing with my father is useless, the upper cl classmen quickly acquiesced, and we proceeded to relieve him of every bit of magic fruit that that tree and yard could yield. Years later, visiting from college. I couldn't help but notice that my father's persimmon passion had not abated. <laughs> he had converted a large portion of his new house into a persimmon processing factory. <laughs> the size and scale of the operation had, in, had expanded. He had created a persimmon chip assembly line. There were baskets and bags of persimmons waiting to be processed into all the various forms a fruit could take. The freezer was full of ready-made persimmon pops 
excellent to bolster the immune system on a hot day. <laughs> he had even discovered a way to make persimmon bread, which was truly awful and tasted like sawdust. <laughs> no happy collegiate homecoming to an overflowing fridge stuffed with delectable goodies enjoyed by other 19-year-old aspiring Olympians. Raiding the fridge at my father's house was always a fruitless affair. There must not be a single persimmon left on any tree in the valley, I thought. <laughs> then the man himself appeared. He was clad in a white clean suit, the kind you would wear to enter a sterile area and then dispose of. His was well used and repaired with duct tape. <laughs> Under his arm was a fencing mask. He didn't fence. <laughs> Hi, Chrissy, he said. I'm glad you're here. I, I need you to help me with something. And my heart sank. <laughs> then I noticed his face usually handsome now it was swollen and misshapen one eye was nearly closed it didn't seem to bother him though what happened to your face I said oh I was moving my bees around and one or two got in my mask he said why would anyone move bees around I thought knowing better than to ask <laughs> don't worry I, I have a suit for you too he said Nearly three decades have come and gone since the persimmon days. My father is an old man now, still cancer-free. I myself am a father, playing out a role I can't escape from, watching history repeat itself as I struggle for a place in the lives of my children. What do they think of me? <laughs> what will they think in time? Everyone knows persimmons don't fall far from the tree. <laughs> Chris Palmquist, bringing home the episode. I'm from here. Here's the story. Please join us every other Tuesday for a new round of freshly minted stories. I am Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio, and we teach people to launch their stories loudly and unapologetically into the world, to laugh more, risk more, and have bigger lives. The Townies Podcast is co-produced by Lily Brown, Asa Larmonth, and Ken Eros. Studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound. The Townies theme song was written and performed by Rain Perry, recorded and mixed by Martin Young, and mastered by Mark Hallman at the Congress House. The Townies podcast is in part made possible by a generous grant from the Ojai Arts Commission and the City of Ojai, a small town with big stories. You can find out more about us at thetowniespodcast.org. Thank you for listening. Duty. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He did. Ken and I are all about the poop jokes. Okay. <laughs> Take number two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Jerry. <laughs> 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 <laughs>